Hey friends, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge. My name is Nicola Torbett, and this is the podcast where we explore our weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. We've aimed this podcast at white listeners like me, who want to dismantle white supremacy following the leadership of people of color and also taking full responsibility for our own part of the work. Of course, anyone and everyone can listen, and we deeply value feedback from listeners of color and those from diverse faith traditions. And we also acknowledge that as white folks, and especially white Christian folks, we have extra work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are digging around in the artifacts of a tradition that has too often been used for harm in search of what is useful for redressing those harms and taking us into a liberated future. For the past many weeks, we've been following the Hebrew scripture readings as they trace the origin stories of a people, the people of Israel, from Abraham all the way through the exodus from Egypt and into the promised land. We're calling this series hashtag journeys to freedom because this is a story that arcs toward freedom, a story about God's ardent desire for a people, a community of people who can mediate God's love and tenderness to the world. It's also a story about how we hurt each other and ourselves, how those hurts get inscribed in our bodies and minds, and it seems even in our DNA as trauma, and how that trauma gets passed down generation to generation in ways that keep sabotaging or at least delaying God's dream. These stories raise all kinds of questions about the nature of freedom And those questions are where we've been hanging out this season. And what a season it has been, my friends. I live in California, which, as you probably have heard, has been on fire for the past couple of months. I'm recording this episode just two weeks before Election Day 2020, and I don't know if it's that or the fires or the pandemic or what, But I've been feeling a little tense. (laughs) I've been having dreams straight out of the Mad Max franchise. In one, I was involved in some kind of resistance movement in which we passed crucial information to each other through a network of little free libraries. Hashtag bookworm revolution. And yesterday, I had a complete and utter meltdown because we were out of apples. Hashtag mood. I guess I'm just saying that I feel a sense of resonance this week with the Hebrew people wandering in the wilderness, sick of manna, tired of so much uncertainty, grieving all the people they were losing along the way, and not all that confident in the leadership of this old guy, Moses, who seems like their best shot at survival. And then sometimes... I can drop down through all that malcontent, all that anxiety, into the grief that lives below it. So many have died. 220,000 people 
have died from COVID-19 in this country. More, probably, by the time you hear this. And even excluding COVID cases, the death rates are way up. Even a veterinarian friend told me the other day that even our pets are dying in unusual numbers this year. We are in some kind of dying time, and it is unclear when or if it will end or how. And yet we are here. We are still here. I think often of a quote from June Jordan, who once said, some of us did not die. What will we do, those of us who remain? What will we do, those of us who remain? Here in Oakland, we are deep in contingency planning for what some are calling the likely event of a coup. We are training for increased state repression, which is likely regardless of the election outcomes. We're forming safety teams and practicing ways to show up in community defense. And in the midst of all that, Some friends and I have been doing ancestor work. I don't know about you, but I often find myself in spaces where the ancestors are called in, and I'm like, uh, I'm not sure you want my folks here. (laughs) I have some super problematic people in my lines. On my mother's side, just for one example, there is Edmund Pendleton Gaines, who was one of the U.S. Army's senior commanders during its first years and as such waged nearly continual warfare on Native people in the eastern part of this country, and once led an attack on a fort where hundreds of fugitives from slavery were living, slaughtering almost everyone inside. On my dad's side, there is even more recent trouble. My paternal grandfather was one of Hitler's bodyguards. I say these things not as some weird kind of brag, but because I'm practicing turning to face the trouble, owning the suffering, and committing to reparations. My friends and I have been working with a teacher who is helping us send healing back through our ancestral lines and cultivate healthier relationships to those people who don't go away just because we don't want to think about them. The past is present with us part of us, and part of what Bio Okomalafe calls the thick present. I'm also helping in a small way to hold space for a large group of white people who are working our way through Resma Menicum's book, My Grandmother's Hands. Maybe you know it. Menicum's assertion is that the racial trauma inflicted on Black, Brown, and Indigenous bodies in this country is the legacy of centuries of trauma inflicted on white bodies in Europe before the colonizers came here. That we are all, at this point, still passing down intergenerational trauma that originated in the Middle Ages in Europe, and that we can heal that trauma once and for all if we're willing to turn and face it where it lives inside of our own bodies. What will we do, those of us who remain, How do we honor the lives of those who came before us and, like it or not, are part of who we are right now? Can we end the legacy of pain that has been passed down for generations? Can it stop here? These are some of the questions that I take with me 
into this discussion of the scripture. Spoiler alert, Moses dies this week. I mean, in the lectionary. He dies after having led a whole multitude through the wilderness for 40 years. And he dies just before they reach the promised land. The text is Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 12. And it goes like this. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. The Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired, and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him, and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land, and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Well, this all feels pretty emotionally resonant, doesn't it? How many leaders have we lost just this year? I'm thinking of the big-name people, civil rights giant John Lewis, Bulwark Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but also some of our less famous but much-beloved movement folks, Stacy Park Milburn here in Oakland, or Elandria C. Williams, whose memorial will take place on November 2nd, just one day before the election, or Cecil Corbin Mark, a powerhouse of the environmental justice movement who died unexpectedly just last week. All of these freedom fighters who died before, well, we're not sure what, but certainly long before we wished. This is not okay. It is not okay that they're gone. And then, of course, I think about the other ways that people die all the time just outside the promised land. I think about Marisol, 
whose story I heard today, who died in the desert crossing into the U.S., having been told by a coyote that her trip would take a maximum of 15 days, but who had been walking for more than three months. I think of Alan Bluford, here in Oakland, who was killed by Oakland police just three weeks before he was set to graduate from high school. This is not okay. It is not okay that they died prematurely, and I'm not going to perform some kind of exegetical wizardry to make it seem like it was okay for Moses to die outside the promised land. It was brutal. Brutal that he died before he reached there, and brutal that his death was apparently at the command of God. That's what the scripture says, that God willed this, that some passages suggest Moses somehow wasn't faithful enough to be allowed to enter. I don't believe that for one second. No. Death is not a meritocracy, and no God I serve would will that. I reject this, and I think we should reject it. It is okay to be angry about all the people who are gone from us too soon. All the ways that the neglect of Pharaoh and the brutality of his minions and the strains and stresses of the freedom struggle, or even just the survival struggle, take our people from us. This is not okay. And we are grieving. And it is right that we are grieving. Let's sit with the bodies. Dwell in the ashes for a while. The ancient Israelites, under the pressures of the wilderness, gave it 30 days. Jewish people today typically observe a year of grief after the loss of a loved one. We can linger here for a few moments. And then, once we have given grief its due, maybe there are a few other things to learn from this passage. Forty years is a long time to wander in the wilderness. According to the map, if God had taken the Israelites from Egypt to Canaan by a direct route, even traveling by foot, it would have taken about 11 days. Clearly, God did not suggest the direct route. Why such a circuitous journey and one that forced a man who was 80 when they set out to sojourn until he was 120 years old. The explanation I've heard and that makes sense to me is that the people needed all that time to unlearn the ways of Egypt and be schooled in the ways of God. They were enrolled in a kind of wilderness school with God as the teacher and Moses as the chief tutor. In the Ten Commandments and the law handed down through Moses, God basically gave the people a new constitution, both the vision and some of the specifics for how to live in a way that did not rely upon domination and exploitation, the ways of Egypt. It makes me wonder, how are we unlearning a way of life that relies upon domination and exploitation? Are shelter-in-place and social distancing a form of wilderness school? 
Have we left Egypt? And if so, are we unlearning Egypt's ways? To what extent are we still immersed in the assumptions of capitalism, assumptions of continual competition and the commodification of everything? Are our relationships suffering under transactional expectations? If I do something for you, then you owe me, or vice versa. Are we still judging our own worth and value by how much we produce? Do rest and play still feel like wastes of time? or like getting away with something? Are we still acting out the logics of white supremacy, aspiring toward more success, notoriety, or visibility? Do we still rank ourselves along a continuum of better or worse people and feel threatened by those who are talented? Is it still easier for you to critique and tear down than to appreciate and build up? Does politeness, fear, or a desire to smooth things over still keep you from speaking the truth, as it does me? It is possible to leave Egypt without Egypt leaving us. As my friend Reverend Lenise Pinkard often says, the plantation is so within us. Or the corporate office, or the grant maker's timeline, or whatever has dominated your way of moving in the world. We may be on our way to the promised land, but we are not quite able to enter. Not yet. We carry the imprint of Egypt within us. Was Moses simply too shaped, even still, by his time in Pharaoh's house? Was he still invested in outdated models of top-down leadership and control? I don't know, but these are questions we might ask ourselves in these days. The Israelites wandered out there in the wilderness so long that a whole new generation was raised up, a generation that barely remembered the horrors of enslavement. And in that generation, ostensibly, was Joshua, son of Nun, the successor to Moses, who would go on to lead the people into the Promised Land. And, of course, that story has been used to do all kinds of harm. I don't want to get ahead of our storyline, but I will say I wonder to what degree the coming conquest stories in Joshua and beyond are shaped by trauma from the time in Egypt. I wonder whether intergenerational trauma kept Joshua and his contemporaries stuck in a repetition compulsion of domination, unable to imagine a future in which no one is subjugated. To me, it is fascinating that this passage today about the death of Moses, just outside the Promised Land, is the very last reading of the Jewish Torah. After reading this story, Jews return to Genesis and start over, so that they are continually arcing toward but never quite achieving the Promised Land. Something about that rings deeply true to me. We are on the journey still. And because of that, we need to be raising up new leaders in every generation, just as Moses did with Joshua. 
Moses took Joshua with him up to Mount Sinai to commune with God and receive the Ten Commandments. Joshua was with Moses when they came back down the mountain and discovered the golden calf idol and broke the tablets with the commandments on them. Moses laid hands on Joshua, the scripture says. I love this traditional gesture of blessing, the intimacy of it, the tender care for this person who is stepping into leadership, agreeing to take on all the guff, receive all the projections of the people, and take risk on their behalf. Moses laid his hands on Joshua, Moses, this great prophet and servant of God, and he passed his authority on. And did you notice that detail in the passage, that note that no one knows where Moses is buried? I don't know exactly what that means, but I imagine it might be about not wanting people to get distracted. Moses wasn't interested in a cult of personality. He never intended to be a charismatic leader. Like John the Baptist, even here at the end, he's doing that he-must-increase-and-I-must-decrease thing with Joshua. That's some countercultural stuff. That's some freedom-making work. Don't memorialize me. Don't get distracted with hero veneration. Step into your own leadership. It's your turn. Move on into the promised land. Some of us did not die. What will we do, those of us who remain? This week, I hope you will spend some time reflecting on your role for this period in our history. Where are you in your leadership journey? Is it time for you to turn your attention to a new generation coming up? Whose leadership are you invested in, and how are you supporting and blessing them and setting them up for the benefit of those to come? Or has the mantle just been passed to you? If that's the case, How are you getting free of the toxic ways of Egypt? How are you healing the intergenerational trauma that has been passed down to you? What are the habits and assumptions that you need to shed in order to lead the people to a new place, into freedom? I'll list some resources in the transcript to help you think about that. I also want to encourage you to get a copy of Resma Menicum's book, My Grandmother's Hands, and work through the exercises in it, ideally with some others. What does it mean for you to turn and face the pain of intergenerational trauma? To do your very best to resolve it so that it isn't passed along to others. If you're interested in doing some decolonial anti-supremacist ancestor work, I'll put a link to that in the transcript as well. That's what I've got for you this week, folks. Thank you for joining us. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Transcripts of this podcast are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. You can read more from me at my WordPress site, which is called The Longing is the Compass. 
Be sure to tune in next week to hear a resistance word from my comrade, Claire Brown. We are building up a new world. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for granting us permission to use the song by that name in this podcast. It was written by Dr. Vincent Harding, and here it is being sung at a movement choir practice led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Max Pearl. Max, so much love and gratitude to you. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for good health, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.